Welcome to episode 62 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, and each week, leveraging Zoom for now, I publish a new episode with a new climate champion as my guest. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at www.crevatenergyinnovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. This week, my featured guest is Bryce Yonker, founder, executive director, and CEO of Grid Forward, formerly Smart Grid Northwest. GridForward is a regional, member-based, nonprofit organization that takes a collaborative approach to bring together utilities, solution providers, government agencies, regulators, advocates, and others to create a modern grid that serves everybody a reality. GridForward encourages investments into new technologies, explores regulatory and business model pathways to encourage best-in-class solution for managing grid systems, and supports cultural change to help energy providers and their partners adapt and thrive in evolving energy ecosystems. And a big thank you to the people in the energy industry for keeping the lights on and the internet up during this time of uncertainty. We're all in this together. While being careful and alert, please be supportive and kind. Also, take the time to thank the people that are taking personal risks to keep our world moving forward. And if you are one of those people, thank you very, very much. As the first executive director and CEO for GridForward, Bryce heads up strategic development, industry engagement, programs, and operations for the organization. In addition, he's involved in a number of other efforts centered around advanced technology solutions for energy and grid modernization, and is always interested in learning more and talking with folks who are doing exciting work. Also, he's the founder and principal of Entertech Development, an energy advisory and consulting firm based in Portland, Oregon, and he's an advisor to multiple industry companies. Welcome to the Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat. I'm here with Bryce Yonker, founder, executive director, and CEO of Grid Forward. Bryce, welcome to the Climate Champions. Lee, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. So let's get right into it. With regards to climate change, what was your motivating moment that made you feel like you had to engage? Well, I don't know if my aha moment may be as striking as some folks that you've had an opportunity to interview. But when I think back on my career and my life and when things kind of became really important to me with regards to making a positive change, I think it's right around 2008 for me. I'm a couple of years out of university. I'm in industry, working with the tech community and kind of feeling like this is fine, but what's it all for? So at that time, I just became really passionate to make a difference. And I couldn't get my attention away from the overlap of applying advanced technologies to energy solutions. And really, the rest is history. And we'll talk a lot about it. But really, it was that time when I wanted to align what I was doing with my life, my career, 
with my passions and really making a difference. So I can't see working in any other space other than, you know, some sort of an overlap of applying advanced technologies within the energy sector. Why do you see climate change mitigation as something that's doing something more? Yeah, climate change for me, I think it goes back to my roots. I'm a native, as they say here in Oregon, one of the few fortunate enough to be in a great career and here working in Portland, but from Portland. And so I feel like I attribute my drive to want to make a difference to just being born here. So I have a huge passion for the outdoors. You know, I recharge by going out and casting a fly or skiing or mountain biking, pass that on to the next generation of my kids. And so I feel like the snowball effect of wanting to make a difference is only becoming stronger, not only in the things that have been happening in this last decade, but for me personally, wanting to make sure that the planet is often a better place for my children and their children and wanting to preserve the sort of places that recharge my soul, which need our attention if we're going to really be able to have access to them. So for me, certainly it lines up on a daily basis to my work, but it really aligns as well to the things that drive me and really make me who I am. It's great when what you do for a living matches what you're motivated by and your passions. Absolutely. Makes a huge difference to wake up and feel excited to do the work that you're doing because you know that at the end of the day, it's going to make a long-term impact. So for me, that is why there's really no going away from trying to work in this space. You know, as we apply advanced technologies to managing our energy system better, that's only going to be able to allow us to be better stewards of our planet. And I'm excited about working on that every day. When you meet people that don't understand the science or don't believe that climate change is happening, how do you convince them otherwise? Fortunately, I'm not in an environment where I'm interacting with a lot of people that are arguing much of that. So I don't need to get much into the science. But if I were to be in an argument, I would just ask people to look outside, just view what is happening out there and try to, with any level of reason, say that there's not changes that are afoot. Here in the Pacific Northwest, our impacts are reasonably mild right now. We might be beneficiaries of a lot of this warmer weather, but even between seasonal snowpack and the increasing wildfires, I mean, even our region's not immune to the sorts of major natural disasters and irregular patterns to what's going on out there. So I would just ask people to look out there and use their own logic, use their own reason. How has the coronavirus pandemic changed your perspective? I wouldn't say that it's changed my perspective on climate change. We're going to get into how it's changed things for me, which is very dramatically. It's amazing how much we don't think about the long-term high-impact, low-probability occurrences and something like a global pandemic was really not on anybody's minds months ago. And now here it is impacting all of us in very dramatic ways. I don't know what the implications of recovering from this health crisis turned economic crisis turned societal impacts of all kinds is going to be on the short term battle to mitigate climate impacts. I guess a bit of me is a little bit fearful around the price sensitivity that institutions and individuals are going to have now. 
Um, but I know that there's already a lot of very interesting correlations between things like decreased pollution and people appreciating that and knowing we can solve this permanently. And it's not a difficult equation. We just need to be dedicated to making it happen. So it's certainly on people's radar, but I don't have a clear picture yet of what sort of impacts are going to play out on a macro basis from it. You mentioned low probability, high impact events, and I'm hoping we learn that those do happen. And there's data to indicate that this was going to happen, the pandemic and the climate change is going to happen. And hopefully we learn that it's worth the investment and that we can do the investment. We can turn on a dime and make money available to do something when it's critical that we do it. Absolutely. And I think that low probability, high impact narrative for me started coming into my lexicon a few years back when I was working with some people around resiliency. And global pandemic is another thing you can add into the list of areas that we didn't realize we needed to be prepared to be resilient for. I mentioned wildfires. That's amongst the mix. Here in the Pacific Northwest, especially west of the Cascades, a major earthquake really started bringing that to people's attention. These are the low probability, high impact events that change lives, change economies. We need to be prepared for them, not to be a doomsday or preparedness person, but we just need to be realistic with what it's going to look like, the sort of implications that these will have. Climate change is different, though. It's a high impact, no doubt, topic. But I don't know that you can categorize it as low probability. It's coming. It's almost certain. (laughs) Certain folks are debating the timeline and the reach of the impact, but it's not low probability. It's a certainty. So hopefully, again, I don't know what the implications of dealing with this global pandemic are going to be out there, but hopefully this makes people more aware that we need to think more long term. We can't be thinking quarter to quarter. We can't be thinking month to month. We've got to be working towards solutions on long-term societal issues, climate change being the prescient one of our generation. I agree with what you're saying. Hopefully, this will teach us that we need to look ahead, as you said, that we can't just look at what's going to happen tomorrow. We have to look at the long-term implications of what we do. Absolutely. We can't only live for today. And American society, American businesses, American culture, maybe even more broadly, modern society has taught us to think about the now. And we have to retrain our way of working, our way of living to have potentially some short-term sacrifices for the long-term gain. Absolutely. Can you talk about what Grid Forward does and what you do at Grid Forward? Yep. Happy to tell you about what I'm doing here with the role. Grid Forward is an industry trade organization that's mission is to promote and accelerate grid innovation. So we are about helping a portfolio of advanced solutions come on to the electric system and scale. So I'm a founder. I was at a coffee shop a decade ago when we dreamed this thing up and have moved it through a few iterations of its current self. And I'm our executive director, so I head up our programs and initiatives, our operations, our finances, our strategy. I work with our stakeholders on moving the activities forward that we're going to plan. How did you get where you are today? You talked about a coffee shop. (laughs) Yeah, there's a coffee shop. Many people could probably envision one of them here in Portland. That's the starting of 
what is now Grid Forward. So at the time, I was heading up an organization I had alluded to in your earlier question. I was heading up an organization to kind of shepherd the technology community here in the area. I had gotten really deep on the overlap of energy technology solutions within the grid. So I was kind of the industry organizer amongst a group of people. Some of us were former government leaders, people in academia, people in technology software, and some of the early providers of energy solutions. And we just decided, let's create an organization that can help support progress on this thing that at the time was being called Smart Grid. And let's figure out how we can organically support it happening here locally. And so I was on the board for five years. Well, it was a very organic organization, really operating primarily in Oregon. Then I took on the executive director role in 2014. We expanded it to a macro regional focus. The organization was called Smart Grid Northwest. So working in Oregon and Washington and Idaho, Montana, BC, kind of the drainage of the Columbia River hydro power system, working with those utilities and stakeholders. Uh, and then just this last year, we refocused the organization to have a little bit of a more current alignment to what's going on out there. And we're called Grid Forward now. So same mission, you know, support progress of applying advanced solutions on to the energy systems, work with utilities, work with innovators, work with regulators and national labs and educational institutions, all those parties that are directly involved in this innovation coming online. Prior to all of this history with Grid Forward and its former iterations, you and I met when I was at a firm called Clean Edge. So we were doing research with Solar City and a bunch of the main tech companies and innovators that were driving clean energy ahead in the 2010s. So I was there for a number of years before this job started just asking more and more of me. So Clean Edge is Ron's still over there. I think he may be on one of your podcasts before too long. They do some fascinating work to track what's going on out there in the marketplace. And it was a good time. And now I'm a little bit deeper on the grid side of things, as they say. Yeah, Ron and I are supposed to talk in a couple of weeks. I'm looking forward to that as well. You make it sound like everything came in a very orderly fashion. Did you have any setbacks along the way? It was reasonably orderly, actually. You know, it was this evolution from software and tech into the application of that within the energy sphere. It was a fascination with how this all gets applied in the electric grid and getting deeper and deeper there. I think I'm an opportunist by personality, so maybe it's good fortune or maybe it's a combination of that and some good decisions. I feel fortunate enough that the things I've been working on, the entities themselves are pretty small, so I've had to have a real big impact on them for their success. So kind of controlling your own destiny is something I am comfortable with, and I think that that's gone all right. We're going to talk a little bit about coronavirus and its impacts on things now, because that's probably my biggest setback is what's kind of unfolding right now. So, we, you know, to be determined where things head with all of how this global health pandemic impacts some of the work that I've been working on over this last decade plus. Yeah, so maybe one of the setbacks is yet to come. I feel like right now I'm currently in the biggest setback of the last 15 years, but it hasn't played out what it's going to be. So I'm working to figure out the solution. Grid Forward's revenue streams are primarily from in-person gatherings. And as you can imagine, those are not happening right now. Within the last couple of weeks, we've canceled all of our events. And within just a couple of weeks, we're launching virtual roundtable discussions and town hall meetings and virtual lunch socials. And we're going to do a podcast series. We've got recorded presentations. I mean, we're just putting a whole bunch of 
different ways to share content and gather community on a virtual basis. But the business model around that, I mean, it's a nonprofit, but the business model around how our community supports that is to be determined. So we've already had to majorly adjust our staffing. We've had to go back to the drawing board on a strategic plan that ink had barely dried and pretty much rewrite it. So it is dynamic to say the least. And right now we have a really interesting portfolio of virtual solutions that we're engaging our community with. But I'm saying it's like planning on quicksand. So any of the bigger, longer term efforts, we're just kind of holding off on right now because we don't know what the base to plan them against is going to look like. We don't know exactly what a lot of our stakeholders are going to need or the sort of financial stability that they will be in. Bryce, knowing you and talking to you right now, I have no doubt that you are going to find a way to maneuver the quicksand. (laughs) I think we have rapidly put together a quite interesting portfolio of virtual solutions. So thank you for that. But it is, it's so difficult to realign long thought out plans. They're not in the trash, right? Because at some point, people are going to want to gather again, and we'll be able to help facilitate that. But overnight changing business models is something that's really interesting, (laughs) a new challenge for me. When you come out of this, you'll have new ways to communicate that you didn't before. So you might gain in some way. I am considering that the virtual lessons we will have are likely iterative to our organization's future. I don't think they're going to be the systemic changes. They're probably adding component parts to something that under the usual trajectory, we wouldn't have been forced to consider. And I think they will be valuable. The core, the meat, if you will, of what we're going to accomplish, I have yet to be able to identify. So it it does feel like there's a lot of uncertainty right now. It's a very good point. But I'm not being pessimistic. I think we're going to do our best. And this industry is a critical infrastructure, undoubtedly. You know, we might talk towards the end a little bit around where energy is headed and how important electrical services are in our ever digitized economies and digitized lives. So it's going to be here, but there are changes afoot, certainly. I don't sense any pessimism, by the way. It seems to me that you're just looking at fighting this and taking on the challenge to keep the organization going. So bravo. Thank you. Can you talk about successes that you're proud of? I'm proud of this organization. To think about how do you change an industry that has remained roughly the same for not a decade, but a century is a major task to try to tackle. And I think we've made substantive change already in the, if you want to think about it this way, short decade that we've been around, especially with an organization that's reasonably limited in its financial capacities. This is the first one that comes to mind. You know, professionally, it's mostly around this. There's been some really fun, cool projects. Some of the details probably aren't the best to get involved in. Personally, it's certainly family life over this last decade have kind of added to that And my seven-year-old and my four-year-old that are healthy and thriving, thank goodness right now, are really what comes most to mind. And it drives a lot of my personal choices as well. You know, people that have maybe my skill set or my background might find themselves in careers that take them away a lot. Right now, certainly you wouldn't be doing that. But being home and being with them and being present, that's something I've been able to do and I'm very proud of. Yeah, I think that's a great choice and you should be proud of it. Can you talk about your vision for the future 20, 30, 40 years out from a climate change perspective? 
the assets that are getting invested in with the stakeholders that we're working with on a daily, weekly basis are making investments 20, 30, 40, 50 years out. If you talk about grid infrastructure, a lot of the thinking that I have is probably closer to the nearer term, right? We've got this toolkit of solutions that in the last decade has become amazingly more robust. What am I talking about? Energy storage, demand side management solutions, advanced metering, analytics, telemetry of all sorts across various points of the energy system, advanced forecasting, all of these tools that a decade ago were thought of as impractical, uneconomical, technically challenged, infeasible, are now there and ready to be used at scale. Many of them have only been used in kind of smaller, more targeted demonstrations. So I think in the next three to 10 years, there's going to be a major wave of modern solutions that come onto the electric grid system and really revolutionize it. You've probably had people coming on talking about the pressures and the dynamics happening on the system. Lots of people like to use a number of Ds, whether it's decentralization, decarbonization, democratization, digitization, things along those lines. Those are all undoubtedly happening. But I think that the lessons from a technical standpoint that are butting up against the structural change components, these are things like market structure cultural change, regulatory markets, those are going to be what needs to align with the technical capabilities of what the marketplace has made ready. And I think that's coming. And I think it's coming much sooner than the next 20 or 30 years. I think it's coming in the next three to 10 years. It's a super dynamic question as to what this current coronavirus implications mean for all of that. Probably, probably something I'm not fully ready to answer on, but we could talk about a little bit. So you think the grid's going to change a lot in the next 10 years, and we've been saying that every 10 years, and it has. Every 10 years, <laughs> it keeps changing more than the past 100. But is it going to change fast enough to avoid the worst effects of climate change? Oh, fantastic question. The grid has changed a lot, but I think that the pace of change is being slowed down by the structures that are the guardrails to protecting it, and rightfully so. So right now, as I had talked about this toolkit of sorts, I think it's sitting there ready to be used. I wouldn't argue that certain areas have technological issues that need to be worked out, but for the most part, we need to align business models in this sector to accommodate the mass deployment of the modern solutions. And so that I think is at the crux of the question, and it's a complicated answer. So you start getting into things like, capital expenditure biases. So the way that we've structured our energy marketplaces over the last century has really put a checks and balance on the big utilities, at least the IOUs, to make expenditures that are justified based on their regulator saying those are going to be used and useful. That's going to be a prudent investment that you're making. But it creates a bias in the marketplace for utilities to invest as much capital as they can possibly get approved. And this portfolio of solutions, not all of them, but many of them help you run a system better. And so they may be more capital efficient. And so we have to align the outcomes that we want from our system. One of those major outcomes being a decarbonization of the energy mix to the incentive structures 
of the organizations that make money in it. And I think that's at the crux of what's going on right now. And I think that that unfolds in this next decade, Lee. I think that the pressures are only going to build with a technology toolkit that's going to be ever more capable. And we have got to align incentive structures of the organizations that make money delivering that service to customers, whether they're residential or business or industrial customers, with the ways that they make profit. And it can't just be a guaranteed rate of return on a peanut butter spread investment of capital infrastructure rate based over a certain period of time. That's going to be a component part of it because there's still centralized infrastructure that's going to be at the core and the backbone of our grid, but there has got to be other business models associated to this. I really could not agree more. I think that is the crux of the problem. I also think that utilities and the people that work at utilities could solve many of these issues from a technology perspective. They work hard. They know how to do it. They know how to incorporate the technology. They're just not incented to do it by the system we have today. They have to be incented. I have very little doubt that the technical wherewithal is not within our grasp. The innovators that I interact with, the technical operators and engineers at a host of utilities across the country, their technical prowess is unfathomable, right? I can barely scratch the surface on what we're capable of doing. Most people have called the grid, you know, the most amazing feat of the last century. And I, I couldn't agree more. The shift to align business models to have a backbone that is invested in over the long haul that you kind of make a guaranteed return on, where you have added services that have different ways of recovering funds on it, is going to be at the crux of the solution. And I don't think it's going to be a one size fits all. You're going to have certain business models that make sense in certain jurisdictions and places that are going to need to do a combination of them to really get at this. Decoupling revenues from earnings is a great step. I hesitate to call any regulatory matters a silver bullet, just like I would hesitate to call any technical innovations a silver bullet. But things like performance-based regulation that some states are starting to look into get at the crux of this answer. How do you align incentivization with the outcomes that we know we need? And Hawaii isn't right in the thick of this. I was talking to Commissioner Potter not too long ago, and they're going to continue their proceeding on looking into continuing to move forward performance-based regulation in Hawaii. And in many ways, Hawaii is kind of the testbed of at least of the United States with how much deployment they have of distributed resources and other technical innovations coming onto their system driven by economics, right? They're the most costly energy system in the U.S. And they've this portfolio of uh, advanced technologies has come in and really allowed community members there, residences there to have better, more reliable, lower cost services. I think one of the issues in California is that there's a lot of fear about changing the business model and the rules of the game because that's been tried before and the governor lost his job over it. So you have the utilities already knowing what they know how to do really well. You even have the regulators knowing what they know how to do very well. So it's tough for them to change. And the legislative branch is concerned that they'll damage something. So it's very difficult to break out of where we are today. Places that are leaning into it most certainly have not figured it out yet. It's exceedingly complex. And there's certainly, like I said, the stakes couldn't be higher when you readjust them. And I think it's difficult to make iterative change in this way. And so everybody's a little bit fearful when you talk about systemic change. 
Yeah, a driver for the industry is reliability. Of course, a driver for any industry is money. Safety is a huge concern. Now we're adding sustainability. There's a lot. You know, the mantra of running an electric grid, not to say that it was easy, but it was basically three adjectives for a century. Safe, reliable, affordable. That's all anybody had to care about. And of recent, you've added at least five or six other adjectives that almost take equal weight. And there's trade-offs in all of them. Yeah. So you have security too, I left off. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it was safe, reliable, affordable. Now you've got sustainable, clean. Now you've got efficient. Now you've got resilient, which is a cousin, but different than reliable. There's all of these different drivers that we're asking of our electric grid to consider simultaneously. And the fact of the matter is, even when you just look at two component parts of them against each other, there's trade-offs. I hope that we're not becoming obscure to the complex in all of this, but there's not really an easy solution. But it does explain why the door is somewhat open to microgrids and the concept of generating your own energy and, and being able to ride through an outage or even not depend on the grid. I think the IOUs, investor-owned utilities, the big utilities that are owned by their shareholders, they would love to invest in a portfolio of targeted microgrid projects. It just becomes a very complex financing question, business model question, when you ask about why why invest in this project there that benefits the certain subset of stakeholders versus another one here, right? So this idea of cross-subsidization or what stakeholders are associated with certain initiatives is just such a sticking point on a lot of these issues. But undoubtedly, I think many places are getting a better sense of where are their sensitivities. Here is where we have really critical infrastructure, as in critical, like life-saving. This needs to be on in the case of disturbance locations. And I would say that uh, to the extent places can make prudent investments, just create a roadmap. Start making those investments. Put a few in now. Then when that low impact, high probability event comes, you are sure going to be happy you started and you'll be down a pathway of understanding better how you can get further along the path of making those resiliency investments. But absolutely, I think hardening the system at strategically critical, important locations is something that every operator, no matter what your natural disaster threat portfolio may look like, has to have near the top of their mind. From a perspective of looking at the future, how do you think the pandemic has changed things for climate change? Fascinating question. I've already alluded a little bit to how it's changed things for us, right? No in-person gatherings. I've talked to every single one of our utility members, which is quite a few in the wider region, and they prepare for disturbances, right? They're ready for system-wide power outages from a storm. They're ready for how to deal with a cyber attack. They're ready for mass wildfire goes on. How do we accomplish this? They have planned for pandemics. I don't think it was near the top of their agenda, but they were ready to respond because they think about continuity of operations. And if you look at any examples or headlines across the news, have you heard about blackouts, brownouts, all of this? No, right? The electric system has been amazingly reliable right now at a time when people are home when they're working and taking care of their family 24-7. And so they have been stalwarts of this transition. So I think the transition to having to work remotely for the vast majority of their operations, save for maybe a few operational system operators and market traders, has gone amazingly well. So kudos to the sector. Every person, every team at the utility when I was there 
had a disaster recovery plan that included a pandemic and talked about how long you could go without coming into the office, how you would get your jobs done, who had to come in. It's very notable how important that was to what's going on right yeah, now. I've talked to a whole bunch of them and overnight, almost all staff have gone to working remotely for now months on end. And look, the system's working. And I know there are places that have had to do pretty extreme circumstances where they're trying to prevent an outbreak amongst their operators. But that hasn't really occurred yet. I think New York got hit the hardest. A number of Con Ed staff did come down with COVID. But still, the system there has remained resilient, has been up and reliable. So I think there's a lot to say about how utilities prepare for this and how they have put that into practice in a time like now. Cultures there are going to get shifted by this, right? So these are organizations that don't think they can culturally change. Guess what? You were forced to change and you did it well you can change. It's possible. <laughs> so, you know, that could be a fallout of all of this is institutional organizations that maybe were reticent to change and didn't think they could. You can and you should. That could be an implication. I have talked to a number of people close to clean energy commitments across the region. There's no wavering on those. I don't see any regions that have committed to fully decarbonize their energy mix or have stated deep decarbonization objectives or requirements. I don't see them backing off on those. In fact, I see those commitments in many ways as the backbone of an economic recovery that's likely to come here in the short term. If you think about what sorts of entities are in a good place to expend capital in an efficient and effective manner, the electric grid is one of the ones that's as good of it as anybody. So they can put people to work. They can put infrastructure in, infrastructure that we desperately need because our systems in some ways are vastly underinvested in, but also to accomplish an economic recovery objective, put people to work, adding efficiency, energy efficiency to homes and businesses and buildings, installing distributed resources to clean up some of those dirtiest last dispatched peaker plants across the region. So I think it's very possible that there's going to be a lot of positive change. It's also possible that we become much more risk averse and much more price sensitive. And as such, it could delay some of the things that are going on out there in the marketplace. I don't know what the immediate fallout is going to be of this. I agree with both perspectives, but I do have a belief here. And that is that the pandemic has shown what can happen if you don't prepare, and how the human race is not prepared to deal with this. We're not ready for this kind of change. <laughs> we don't like it. It's not what comes natural to us to just stay indoors and to hunker down. We want to get out there bad. And so I do think this is going to show us a recipe to follow of turning on the faucet of dollars and science to make sure that we don't get hit by climate change as bad as we otherwise will. That's my prediction. This is the first time I'm saying it. You're right. It is a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call that life as usual can change, and we need to be ready and able to adapt to better prepare a future for ourselves. And again, the thing is, is we're being forced in this current situation to deal with the way we are. Climate change is going to happen so slowly. So it's so difficult to know if the institutions that are going to drive the investments that are necessary in the long term to do this change are going to be able to kind of win out the day and start building the road. I guess I'm trying to see the silver lining here. It seems to me 
that this is something that is going to shape attitudes for decades to come. Yes, we have a short-term memory, but when the Depression happened, people still saved aluminum foil for the rest of their lives because they saw what that was like. And I think this is something that is not going to be easily forgotten and will cause change to happen in the way people think about the future and risk mitigation. Yeah, I hope so. I think we're right in the thick of it, so we don't know. And here's where things get really bizarre, right? I just read the headline this morning. NASDAQ is up to its current drop from where it started. That's not logical. The tech community having a valuation in the stock market that is saying, nope, coronavirus didn't have any financial implications on this net-net. That's not logical right now. So I'm trying to figure out what sort of, you know, macroeconomic, macro government, macro societal changes kind of align to the current realities. And there's still a lot of distortions out there. Will be interesting to say the least. From a financial markets, I completely agree with you. I have no idea what's going on. I'm on the sideline and happy to be on the sideline, to be honest. Do you have any questions for me? My brain power right now is really wrapped around this question of aligning business models to outcomes. The access I have to the portfolio of innovation, it does not strike me that the technical issue is the problem right now. There is a suite of exceedingly capable innovators and especially capable deployment agents between industry and utilities right now, and that the distortion is really on the, on the market structure side. I think there are even more exciting products, even more innovative products in the space that are going to be coming into the market. Yeah. And hopefully they'll be so good that maybe they can shake the business model regulatory space into action. Yeah, I think we're on a trajectory. I don't think it's a bell curve or anything like that. I don't think it's a hockey stick, but I think we've seen a major input of innovation in the last decade that is going to continue and only going to provide more pressure, like you had said, because the economics are only going to make more sense. The customers are only going to demand things more. The various drivers that justify change are only going to become more acute. And so you're going to have to solve it. Basically, the distortion between expend the most capital and expend the smartest capital, there's going to only become more of a delta on that in the coming years. And you can't justify that until you realign incentive structures. So why deploy voltage management right now? It's an in-the-weed solution. It's not like a really sexy topic. But at the end of the day, you know, it's the same sort of issue that energy efficiency had 30 years ago. Why shoot yourself in the foot and sell less of your product unless you're kind of forced to? So the efficient expenditure of capital is, I think, going to become the name of the game. How you make returns on that are going to be really interesting. Okay, I'm going to wrap this up and I'm going to wrap it up with a wrap. <laughs> When it comes to your passion, you wanted to do more. You started to ask, what's it all for? You didn't want to see the natural beauty gone because you were raised in Oregon. <laughs> grid innovation helps the grid, and that's a fact. You wanted to do something about the long-term impact. You really want the human race to find a way to have a really good future, a great future day, you live northwest of me, and you want to control your own destiny. I have to tell you, 
I have to give you a hand. I know that you will navigate the quicksand. There are great technology solutions. They're smart and wise. And the grid, they will revolutionize. Over and over, we said the business model today must burn. We can't just have a guaranteed rate of return. (laughs) That's fantastic. Thanks, Lee. It was interesting talking to Bryce about his organization's core competency and reliance on bringing people together to collaborate and how he is maneuvering through the pandemic quicksand by exploring new channels of communication. Leveraging the same podcast provider as I do, Podbean, you can tune into Grid Forward Chats and you can check out their video briefings on YouTube and subscribe to Grid Forward. If you have questions or comments about the podcast, visit my website at www.crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. I loved Bryce's recollection about the idea for Grid Forward starting in a Portland coffee shop. Listening to his passion, you can see why it didn't stop as an idea and is now a successful regional organization with over 60 members working together to make the smart grid a reality. Bringing diverse organizations together to collaborate and create a better future is critical to mitigate climate change.